everybody, welcome to another episode of Like a Street Photography Collective. I'm Ricky, and today's guest is Martin Loft. So once again, thank you for taking the time out of your day, giving the listeners something to listen to. Please introduce yourself, where you're at, where you've been, what you do, anything you'd like the world to know. Hey, Ricky. Uh, glad to be here, for sure. Great for that. Thanks for the, for the invitation to share some of my uh, the things that I know, things that I've done. Um, my name, again, is uh, Martin Loft. My Mohawk name is Aguiranoro, and it means uh, precious tree. I'm from a uh, Mohawk community on the south shore of Montreal, uh, opposite uh, Lachine, uh, about 10 miles, as they say, as the, as the, as the crow flies from the, the city core and uh, the location of many of my uh, my photographs. I like to photograph there. Um, so I was born and raised in the community. Um, started uh, taking photographs when I was about, well, as a child, of course, like many people with Instamatic, but got my first uh, 35 millimeter when I was 17 years old. And in fact, I still have the receipt. Don't have the camera, but I uh, do have the receipt that I, 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 I purchased a used camera at a camera shop in, in a busy shopping area in, in Lachine. Uh, it was a Zenit E. Some people may know about uh, the Zenit E. It's a, uh, it's basically a Soviet-era camera, built like a brick, probably heavier than a brick, and could be used as a weapon, I suppose, if, uh, if you needed, uh, needed to do that. But I got my start there, and uh, I've been photographing ever since. So that's like, you know, 40-some-odd years of, uh, of taking pictures. Of course, I started in the, the analog, uh, analog era, you know, shooting um, color negative, and I, I drifted towards uh, black and white, uh, you know, tri-X, of course, like everyone else. Um, and uh, I, I attended uh, Dawson College in Montreal, which is um, um, a, a, well, community college that uh, is a pre-university uh, program. And it recently evolved, but recently after I left, evolved into the Dawson Institute of Photography, which specialized most, for the most part in commercial photography. I was not interested in uh, commercial photography. I was interested in, um, well, documentary, you know, kind of uh, photography, which kind of, kind of like segued into uh, into street photography. Um, I later attended Concordia University in Montreal, which is uh, a university about two miles down the road from uh, from Dawson College, and uh, I basically never looked back. I, I met a lot of interesting people uh, at the school, a lot of interesting teachers. Some people who've uh, gone on to to great things in, in Canada and so on, and internationally. Um, I've been exhibiting my photographs, I guess, since 1985. Um, a curator at the University of Quebec at Montreal uh, spotted some of my work, uh, and I was put into an exhibition that later went on to uh, to New York City, to Columbia University, and so on. So I got my start then, and um, I've been photographing and, and doing things. No, ever since. Nice, nice. Very nice introduction. You mentioned Zenit E, and I instantly knew it was a Soviet camera. I'm very familiar with the brand. I believe they actually still continue to manufacture cameras now, and they have a lot of their famous lenses more modern. And I, is it Zenit? I believe it was Zenit. They teamed up with Leica and they actually created their own version of the Leica M240, I believe. And they, they were like, given, okay. they were given full permission by Leica. It's basically just a rehoused M240. So 
they got like all uh-huh. the rights and everything, and they have a more updated version of an M two forty, but it's exactly that. That being said, sure. the lens so, mount was it Jupiter or Helios? Oh, good question. It was a screw mount. All I remember was a screw mount. It kind of like it just like just screwed right into the uh, into the camera, and uh, I think it had uh, one thirtieth of a second was the lowest, and that was the uh, the sync with the flash, mm-hmm. and then it went up to five hundred one five hundredth of a second. Yeah, but, I'm um, pretty sure that it is Jupiter and Helios because of the screw mount. Needless to say, Jupiter are Carl okay. Zeiss clones. And then Helios is very famous because of the swirly bokeh. Bokeh. Sure, yeah. sure. I, I know that uh, I was I was in East, well, the former East Germany uh, in the uh, the mid nineties, mm-hmm. uh, right after the, the the wall came down, and I was in a town that uh, had a uh, practica um, uh, uh, factory. Are you familiar with the Practica? I am. Practica is kind of like an East German, East German, or it was a German camera. Before the wall came down, of course, it was all German optics and German uh, 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 production lines and so on, mm-hmm. and technology. And when the wall came down, uh, all of the lenses were still in the factory, all the formulas, and they continued to, to make them. And the funny story is they said, you know, um, they sold the Practica internationally to, you know, around the world. In Canada, I know, sold a lot of brand new uh, Practicas, and they said that they they sold them for uh, for less than it cost to make them because they were so desperate to get American currency. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it also, you know, we were buying them for two hundred and fifty dollars. They were probably making them for like a hundred and fifty. Uh, and selling them for you know maybe a hundred bucks and you know so it was, it was ridiculous. So the, the, they told me that the moment that the wall came down, the factory closed. You know, oh, so that's... little footnote to uh, to photo to photo history. But the lenses were good on on the Practica and and the Zenit for sure. So Practica, I had I actually still have one. It's a film old film one. I like the design. I'm not gonna lie. I purchased it because this was right before film resurgence came through and I was over there just collecting everything. But at that time I was shooting Fujifilm and they had all the adapters were starting to come into play. And I was trying to purchase all of the legacy lenses and Practica actually had a partnership with Carl Zeiss and they were screw mounts, M24s. And I bought, it was cheaper to buy cameras as a set with the lens than it was to just buy the lens separately. So what I was doing was every time I would find a good deal, I was living in the UK at the time. Every time I'd find a good deal on a lens I was searching for, I had to get with the camera body. Needless to say, I started this collection of camera bodies that I had no intent on intent to use or shoot. And I still have the practic. I tried to sell it because I shoot with the Leica. I just really wanted the Carl Zeiss lens. So yeah. <laughs> that's a good one. That's yeah. a very good. Well, you can't beat uh, you know glass. And you get good glass mm-hmm. and good film. You know, it's kind of like a good. It's like a sensor now, right? So if you've got if you got the good lens and good sensor, you can't uh, you can't keep a, a good person down. Yeah, I still have the lens, by the way. And when I purchased the Practic, I did. I always like, what is this brand? I never heard of it. And I, I Googled it. 
And I think they actually still manufacture some camera accessories. Um, I don't believe they make cameras anymore, but I believe they are they focus more on optics or something like that. So you can look them up. Oh, that's, that's possible. Some that's kind possible. Of so, yeah. Interesting intro. We got exhibitions. We'll get into that a little later. But like for now, kind of want a little more in-depth explanation story about when you started making photos we got you still have your receipt and you should get that framed nice little mount glassed up put it on the wall behind you frame it but why don't you share a little more about when you started making photos and when you did what kind of photos you were making Okay, so when I when I started, of course, I was a, a young person, you know, seventeen, eighteen. I think, I, yeah, around that time. Um, <clears throat> at the time, I wanted to be uh, an iron worker. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, high steel at all, but uh, the folks who build uh, skyscrapers, let's say, um, you know, from my community, our, our community is well known for uh, for iron work and so on. And people boom out, they call it. So they go to New York City, they go to Boston, they go to. Texas, they go to various um, cities in the, in the world and, and, and basically erect uh, buildings, you know, and so on. So our people in Ganawage have been involved in ironworks since the 1890s. My brother, of course, was a, uh, a journeyman ironworker. He was, he was out there connecting the steel and so on, and he had just bought a camera. And uh, one, one weekend he came home. Uh, I was bugging him to, 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 to get a, uh, an apprentice book. He could buy an apprentice book and go out and do iron work and so on. And I was bugging him and I said, come on, let me, I've got the money and so on. And he says, ah, you put it off. He put it off. Anyway, one, one day he came back with, uh, with this camera. And I, I think it might've been a Yashica might've been one of these, uh, cameras, 35 millimeter camera. And it was like a rangefinder type uh, type machine, mm-hmm. and I was totally uh, I was totally amazed. And I had all these buttons and knobs and the lens, and then his stack of pictures, you know, showing his travels, you know, showing the work that he did in the cities that he's seen, and you know, all of these things just totally uh, captivated me. So I, I think that was kind of like the kernel, you know, that kind of like uh, kind of kind of made me think, oh, that's interesting. And, and the first thing I did. Uh, or one of the first things I did was I went out and I and I bought this uh, this camera and um, you know I, I basically the guy put the camera in the put the film in the camera you know said uh, you know for sunny days this uh, Kodak Color uh, 100 you know set it at 250 put it at 11 you know make sure the sun is uh, behind you you know kind of deal and you're gonna get pictures mm-hmm. yeah this is it you know go out and, and do this. I believe it was, uh, it used to be ASA at the time, uh, 100, American Standards Association. Now it's International Standards Association. Anyway, so ASA. And I went out, and sure enough, I was uh, back the next week with my cameras. In fact, fact, I walked from the camera store back to my home, uh, which was across a train bridge crossing uh, the St. Lawrence River. I I don't know if you're familiar with the St. Lawrence, but it's about a a two-and-a-half-mile-wide uh, a river from uh, the island of Montreal to the South Shore to my uh, to my community, and I just took pictures. I mean, I'd say some of the first pictures were what you would describe as uh, like street or documentary. You know, people uh, reading a newspaper on a picnic table and so on, and you know, shots of the girders, shots of 
you know, kind of like the wildlife that is running alongside the, uh, the train tracks and so on. And I got home and, um, you know, I, I continued to take pictures of my family and friends and, and, and this sort of thing. But, um, you know, like I said, when I went to, to school, when I went to, uh, to Dawson College and later at Concordia, you know, I was influenced by many of the people there who uh, were practicing practicing photography. Nice. So you were through it. You mentioned Triax earlier in your introduction. Yeah. Why Triax? I'm just curious. Triax was the uh, the film of the day. You know, it was like uh, you could shoot at 400, which was kind of relatively low uh, ASA or ISO. You know, like you could see shooting in, in uh, on a beach uh, on a camping trip, or you could push it and you know shoot rock concerts and shoot almost in the dark kind of deal and, and still get you know some uh, something out of it. You know, so it was. I think it was like it was considered like a utility, like a utility film. You know, uh, I used to, I did, I did a series of portraits because I'm, I, I, when I was, uh, studying, of course, I, I did all sorts of things. Uh, one of the things that, um, I, I, my first exhibitions, actual exhibitions in, in, in galleries and so on was a portrait series I had done and I shot it on a, uh, a rolly cord, a two and a quarter, like the square, um, you know, like the twin lens, uh, camera. I still have that camera and I wanted, um, almost like extreme detail. I wanted a shallow depth of field. And of course I want a black and white film. So I used a film called Panatomic X. Mm. I don't know. If, I'm sure some of your old timers out there heard of Panatomic X, but I believe it was, I should have researched this one, but the ISO was something like 25, mm. you know, it's like the old Kodachrome. They had a 64 and then I believe they had like a 10, you know, it was like, so at the time, if you made a, like an 11 by uh, 11 uh, square image, there was virtually no grain. So it was similar to shooting like um, like a five by four by five or a, you know a, a large format camera, um, but it was portable and you got 12 shots. You know, so if you were doing portraits, you know I used to use one roll 12 shots per person that sat in front of me. So uh, at the time. Um, I did a portraiture. I was just getting out of school and I was working at, um, well, the Indian Center, they used to call it at the time, the, the Montreal Native Friendship Center, which was kind of like a community center for uh, Native people, Indian people from all over the country that would gather uh, at our center. And I used to, um, I used to basically be like, uh, I used to open the doors and I used to make coffee and I used to kind of like, uh, um, you know, help people out, you know, find things and do things. And, you know, they needed some sort of, um, you know, referrals to places. Our job was to kind of refer them to the hospital workers or for refer them to, you know, places that they could find jobs and so on. Um, and through that experience, I, you know, it, it's, 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 it's a difficult story because not all of it is pleasant. You know, some people, uh, indigenous and otherwise struggle in the cities, you know, like they kind of, they struggle to get a job. They struggle to find housing. They, you know, it's, 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 it's no mean, uh, feat. And, you know, especially if you get a language problem, you know, or people don't speak English properly. And in Quebec too, it's, it's interesting because it's a, a French speaking, uh, province in, in Canada. So, 
of all the provinces. Quebec is primarily the French-speaking uh, province in the, in, in the country. So if you don't have a, a solid grasp of French, it, it becomes, you know, even more difficult, you know, to, to, to do things. So um, that was basically my lens kind of like was, uh, was there. My camera was there to record some of, you know, of their lives. And I did a, a portrait series. I, 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 I finished at about 50 portraits of, uh, of the community. And um, um, I, there's about 25 that survive right now. So, um, you know, that was first my first kind of like, if you could say, like a project. You know, that I, I envisioned it. I had a goal. You know, I had something in mind. And, you know, I, I, I made portraits of, of these people. And, you know, it was, uh, it was gratifying to me and gratifying uh, for the community as well. Yeah, definitely. So that's really interesting. I was going to ask if you ever used large format camera before. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. In school, I used a 4 by 5 uh, and then I eventually, I, I bought myself a Linhoff Technica. I don't know if you're familiar with the Linhoff Technica. I am. The Schneider Sorry. lenses, they're beautiful cameras. It's also a, it's also a rangefinder. Mm. I used to use it because what they were used for, and I used to have a, um, oh, geez, a Graflex. A Graflex is also a rangefinder. <laughs> so if you ever get into a large format, you could shoot, you could use either a Graflex or a Linhoff. And uh, with the, the standard lens, and then you slap it on there, and then the rangefinder is basically it's like um like one of these uh, golf rangefinders, you know, like they used to have years ago. It was like a little had a little mirror, and you could kind of like you know you, you do a parallax, and it tells you how many feet away you are from the green or from the you know from the hole from the flag and that sort of thing. And so um, I used it a few times as as a rangefinder with a flash, mind you, you know because. You know, shooting, and they, they did anyway. All the old um, press photographers back in the day, if you ever watch any old movies, you know, they all had their grass flexes, and I guess that the higher-end ones had their uh, their lofts. But uh, for sure, in school, they taught us to use, uh, you know, 4x5 studio camera and, and range finders. I had a range finder. And um, in, I'd say, maybe the last three years before the pandemic and then during the pandemic, um, I have been toying with the idea. I had been toying with the idea of doing a wet plate collodion um, uh, process, the series, the uh, pieces. Uh, are you familiar with wet plate collodion? The tin types. I'm familiar it's with. Like the, it's wet like type. A, uh, it's like I've it's, never seen the process wet, before. Yeah, wet plate is uh, basically um, it's after the daguerreotype and then the wet plate and tin type. And it's basically you um, you apply a light sensitive. You make your film. You apply your light sensitive material to a piece of tin or plexiglass or glass, <clears throat> and then you have to uh, take the photo photograph in, in a, uh, a film holder while the um, your material, your film, basically is still wet because it only is sensitive to light while it's wet. So it's like a tacky type thing, yeah. and then you have to develop it. The only problem I find is that it's um, uh, my daughter is an environmentalist and she's been involved in uh, international uh, you know, climate change events and so on like this. So it, it just gnawed on me that it is it's probably the most toxic of all of the uh, photo processes, yeah. you know, because you literally have to fix your, so you develop your, your film, 
You have to wash your film, and then you have to fix it, which turns from a negative to a positive <clears throat> using cyanide, and not fake cyanide, the real cyanide. So, you know, if you have a if you have a um, a little cut, an open cut on your hand, that Nick, if you're it were to die. get into your eyes, you're going to die. There, there's no antidote. Yeah. You're going to die. You will die. It's that simple. <laughs> and then the when you have to dispose of it, when you have to dispose of it, you know, people, um, you know, you, you'd have to go to a hazmat place. You'd have to take all the precautions. And I know that some people just toss it out. You know, it's kind of like... It's the shameful part to get people in trouble, get me in trouble. But so anyhow, I, I, I decided against uh, doing wet plate. So what I do is a kind of a hybrid um, paper negative. So I use enlarging paper mm-hmm. and I put it in and I cut it down to size into a five by seven. And I have an eight by 10 and I, and I, and I do some still life. And I also do some portraits in that method. So yeah. it has a, the, the beauty and the interesting ethereal effect that um, uh, wet plate has for me, anyway, I'm sure people who do it, is that it is an orthochromatic um, film type or type, and that anything that is red, so it isn't sensitive to red, for, for example, and, but if there's red in the image, mm-hmm. you know, if someone has a reddish face or if they're wearing a red shirt or if there's something red behind them, it will interpret it as black, you know, so it kind of like, it has almost like a, um, like a, like an infrared Sorry. feel to it. So it's almost like a built-in, uh, ethereal look to it, mm-hmm. like a dreamy look, you know? So I think that's what people uh, enjoy about that. What, what I do, for example, about that method. Um, you know, but it's also has other, other things, you know, like you have to move very deliberately and you have to move very slowly and it is, you know, a time between when you uh, ask the person to sit, to stay still, to breathe, and then, you know, take the picture. And usually, in, in my case, uh, the film that I use is uh, Coca-Color uh, Polycontrast, Kodak, but it's a Kodak uh, enlarging paper. And it generally, the ISO would be equivalent to about, say, between six and nine. So the exposures... You know, generally with my lighting system situation, uh, I use continuous light. And at F8, it's usually about a four-second exposure. You know, so you get, you know, very interesting pictures for sure. That's so cool. You've probably touched, like, every medium and format of photography-based imagery. You are the first person I've spoke to that's actually done wet Printing, is that correct? And tintype. Yeah, wet, it's called wet, wet, wet yeah, plate. wet plate collodion is the yeah. same thing. Collodion is tintype. Yeah. And um, there's there's a few people in Montreal that do it, and uh, I, I did I did one workshop with a fellow who's an absolute like master at it, and then another woman that I know came in and did a, a, a demonstration. I thought again. And but like I said, beautiful, and I hold nothing nothing against people who do it. I'm sure many of them, you know, dispose of their chemicals ethically and so on. But for me, I, I found it just too um, too toxic, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it's it's not worth it in the end. Because if you if you you mess up, 
it could be the last thing you do yeah. <laughs> if you mess up with cyanide, man. Mm-hmm. You know, I was it getting is, uh, it's, it's, it's a tough one. So to all the listeners Well, back there, in the day, people, people... Go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, back in the day, the, 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 these, these photographers that rode on a horseback and out with donkey trails, trains, you know, going out photographing the mountains, uh, I'm sure many of them over the years, you know, perished, cyanide. you know, from uh, exposure to cyanide. Uh, and then even before that, with, with uh, the daguerreotypes, they would develop their, in, their images with boiled mercury. So oh, the mercury vapor um, de- developed the, the images, you know. So it's been a, it, photography has been a, a toxic game for sure uh, for a very long time. Ah. But, uh, I like the pun. you know with digital it is it is it is changing. I like the pun to- toxic photography. We'll get into that later. Yeah, Don't. well, that used, you know, believe it or yeah, believe it or not, that used to be an issue. It used to be an issue. I've I've been to conferences where people you know kind of berated photographers because you know the the, the process was so um, you know so toxic. Mm-hmm. Apparently, there's a, a lake in Russia um, that, um, that uh, apparently on the bank. I should, I should again. I should have done the research. People could Google it. Apparently, there's a lake in, in Russia that uh, was the dumping ground of of, of, of uh, photochemicals and photochemistry plants for for decades, if not uh, yeah, for many decades, and it, it totally killed the lake. You know, and they're saying that it, it won't come back for like uh, two thousand years. You know, like oh. it's so it's so far gone. <clears throat> I wrote you know, that so down. it is. Uh, I'm gonna look that one up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look that one up for sure, sure. And to all the listeners, the Kodak and, and the companies don't flush your chemicals. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. Well, apparently the the worst one would be the uh, would be the fixer. You know the the developer and the and the, and the stop bath are basically, I think, from what I understand, organic, uh, organic that will break down in, in the uh, again in the water. I'm sure the water filtration people aren't happy to hear this, but the fixer is is the most um, toxic one because that's where all the metals go. So when you fix it, you're basically removing the silver from the paper to make your image. Mm-hmm. You know, and and from the develop from film as well. So that's the one. That you have to either learn to uh, to extract the, the silver from that fluid, or find a you know a proper disposal uh, facility for that. Definitely, I have not done too much darkroom work. I've developed my own black and white film, but they said the chemicals were all reusable up to it's a certain a- point. So I still have them in their container. I haven't. Yeah, yeah, sure. I haven't done anything. I don't know what to do. And the last of my chemicals is pretty much they're done. You can only use them after what, like ten? Ten's the max, right? I've exhausted its life. And yeah, yeah. Still we used to have a little chart. We, yeah, we used to have a little. Yeah, we used to have a little chart. You know how many times you've done it and so on. You know, they, they they say, what they say is that, uh, like, individuals like you and me, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you know, you know in, in the real world of uh, pollution and so on, we aren't necessarily going to make too big of a of a, uh, a dent in, in the pollution. It's, it's the large 
organizations, you know, like Kodak, like, yeah. like Fuji Film and so on, back in the day that, you know, developed films on the massive scale, you know, those are the ones really. And even with them, they, they even 20 years ago, they were making uh, strides, you know, and kind of like to recoup most of their, uh, their toxic stuff and then to do, dispose of it, um, yeah. you know, ethically and so on. That's what happened up in... But I started it. In Minamata, Japan. I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar exactly. with the, the story where... Eugene Smith's yeah. work, sure. Yeah, so... They I get to see the movie, though, but apparently... It's a really good movie. I like how they did it. Not all of it's 100% true. Obviously, there's a lot of entertainment entertainment value added to get, you know, list of viewers. I liked it. It's very interesting. Again, it's not 100. I had to go and read the like, hey, is this, how much of this is true? So some of the events that took place, place are true. But what I really like about it was how they recreated moments of his photographs that he took while he was there. So, yeah, his most famous one with Tomoko in the bath, they recreated that one. And that's a very, very... Wow. Uh, touching moment so i would highly recommend watching that movie if you have not at least yeah i i i'm gonna look, make a make a note for sure of, uh, i mean that thing you know that, um, what we people used to say years ago was that it's very easy to learn to develop film mm-hmm. it's very easy to learn to print you know develop film print you know but in, and in like in like in in printmaking, I do printmaking as well, screen printing, lino cut, wood cut, a little bit of litho as well. Um, all of these um, art forms or crafts, whatever you want to call them, are very easy to do on the surface. The trick is getting good at it, mm-hmm. you know. And that's yeah. that's the part that takes the time, <laughs> it takes the dedication, it takes the kind of like like the rigor, the, like the, almost like in photography. It's basically like the scientific method because you're being like a, an amateur uh, chemist, really. You know, you're dealing with, you know, the algorithm, the, the logarithm, algorithms, algorithm, logarithm. Anyway, so you're dealing with curves. You're dealing with, you know, kind of like what you can extract from a negative. Mm. Um, you know, so you know, in in a way, though, I I find that with uh, with digital, it's freeing up a lot of people. You know, who can become really good really fast. You know, back in the day, um, you know, developing film and and uh, printing, uh, we're talking like uh, five, six years, you know, before, you know, you could get something consistent, you can get something really good. And, you know, then you have to be consistent throughout, yeah. you know, 25, 30 images. I you know, think... whereas now you can pretty much do it on, do it on the computer and, uh, you know, get, you know, very, very nice uh, results. Yes, printed from your images. I still think it takes about three to five years to get good at it, especially if people are starting to pick film up more and more now. And I've seen a lot more people. I'm meeting a lot of. I've met photographers who have shot film from day one and young, like either younger than me, same age as myself. And older, they have not dabbled with digital digital photography. They they do now, but there's still some that won't. They'll stay 100% film. But I started off as digital and I moved into film. And then film got popular. 
But as I was there, the whole process, it still takes time. Like you, you can shoot HP5 for 10 years straight and develop it for 10 years straight. And every time you develop it, there's always going to be like a slight difference. It'll never be 100% the same. You may have missed an agitation. You may have missed a little shake. I don't know what it may be, but what I did learn, and I've watched like YouTube videos of like people who are very, very experienced with developing film, and they've done, you know, experiments. All right, let's see what happens when we develop. And it's all the same solution, but every little action they do alters how that film is developed. To the slightest grain, the contrast, the darkness, the lights, the shadows. So, but even that whole entire process, when you get good at it, and for me, I think beside you yourself, because you seem very familiar with the whole process, the other most master printer with films and paper would have to be Knox Birdie out in Australia. That guy is a magician. Okay. I'm not. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work. But if you're not, he is no. like always in the dark room. He's pushing his boundaries and he's trying new things and he comes up with these crazy concepts in, in good ways, not bad. But yeah, that that's an artwork and an art form in itself. And um, other than you, because you're like the only person that I've ever spoke to that's actually done those different types of formats. Like that guy is yeah. 35 millimeter film <clears throat> paper. He is the master. I'll, I'll say not 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 that I'm trying to compete with you, but to, to top your uh, <laughs> top your thing. Uh, back in the day, uh, well, five millimeter medium format and in the eight, in the large format mm-hmm. realm, let's say uh, Edward Weston and uh, Ansel Adams, oh, yeah. two of the titans in the field, are out there, right? Yeah. Uh, well, they were friends. And they photographed together sometimes. Well, Adams was in Yosemite and, and Weston's famous California works and everything. And I recently, uh, we went on vacation with my wife and we went to, on the, on the, on the coast. We were in, um, around, uh, San Diego and Fallbrook and Palm Springs. And we drove up the coast and I said, well, if we're going to drive up the coast, I, I, I read online somewhere that someone went to the Edward Weston Wildcat, um, studio in darkroom in, um, in, um, in Carmel by the sea. So I did my internet sleuthing, you know, and I found out that, uh, yes, in fact, you can book a tour to the, to Edward Weston's, uh, darkroom in studio. Oh, nice. And, you know, the only thing is you have to make a donation to the foundation. He has a foundation that, uh, I guess helps, uh, the preservation of, uh, of the of the coast of places like Point Lobos and, mm-hmm. and many of the uh, the redwood forests and so on, and uh, I visited uh, Wildcat. And I met his uh, his grandson Kim, who's a, a absolutely fine, fine like you can't get any finer uh, darkroom printer and so on with the large format process and everything. So I got to stand in Edward Weston's darkroom. I saw his, uh, where he did his negative retouching, his enlarger, his old camera. It was like total, uh, it was, it was like I was telling a friend of mine who's who's been into uh, large format for it. It was like, uh, 
the shrine of photography. You know, they, you know, it's, it's really quite nice. But uh, yeah, for 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 sure, you know, dark room work is uh, it, there. There are like a million variables. It reminds me, I do printmaking, and part of printmaking, if you ever do, um, you know, work with uh, with with oil based inks or acrylic based inks and the presses, and it's what it is is it's problem solving. You know, when something goes wrong, so it's great. If everything goes great, you got your, well, say, for instance, your darkroom, you got your exposure right, you got your, you know, focus right, everything goes right. You know, those are only those variables. Now you have to go into the chemistry side of it. You know, I mean, there are all those, you know, the pH value of the water, for instance, you know, the quality, whatever municipality you're in, you've got to think about the water, you've got to think about the impurities. You know, you even have to think about the, um, you know, the, um, the the pressure, the air pressure that you're in. You know, if you're if you're in, uh, was it Salt Lake City? Is it Salt Lake City that is uh, the Utah Jazz? Where do they play again? In um, in Denver. You know, you're like a mile up in the air. Utah. You know, so Utah. you've got all of Utah. You've got all of those, you know, variables. I had a friend who moved out to New Mexico mm. in uh, in the '90s. And that's what he said he had to do. He had to run all the tests over again, you know, to get to the point where, you know, things came out consistent in a consistent uh, manner. You know, so there is different. I mean, if you're in, in the heart of New York City, you're on the, in the desert. If you're in the north, you know, you've got, uh, you've got all those things. And as, you know, as what they used to call like a master photographer was someone who could problem solve all of those things you know, get down to, you know, where, where everything is, uh, you know, running on all, uh, eight cylinders, <laughs> you're, you're ready to go, you know? So uh, that was, uh, that was one of the things for sure. I tried my luck at trying to develop two tanks at once with multiple rolls. So it was four rolls of 35 millimeter film. And I was, I was overwhelmed. I couldn't. <laughs> I just shake, shake, grab the other one, I just take. And I was getting so confused on which one was which. I was like, I can't, I don't have the mental capacity to develop more than one tank at a time. So for all of those people that can do it. <laughs> what I did was, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, um, well, when I, I, I started getting, uh, I a Jobo processor was my, my solution. Yeah. So a Jobo processor is like a, a mini, uh, like almost like a washing machine. Yes. You load up your uh, you load up your film. You know you could put in thirty five millimeter film. You could put in two and a quarter film. You could put four by five film. And it came in like a tube. Mm-hmm. You know, and you, and you just you slapped it in that Jobo thing. You had water bath for all your chemicals. You had the time, and it even like gave you a little buzz. You know, like to like all right, now it's time for your uh, developer. Now it's time for your fixer. You know that sort of thing, mm-hmm. and. Um, I was able to get consistent results developing all of them, you know. So, and that's, so one thing I get, I didn't, I gave, I gave away my enlargers. I gave away most of my uh, kind of darkroom work, darkroom uh, equipment, but uh, I hung on to my global processor. I still have it. That's the last thing I, I don't want to give it away. You know? No, no. So anyway. I, I look, I was trying to see what I needed to develop my own film. This is when I first started developing at home. And Jobo came up, and I was like, oh, what is this? And I, I looked it up. Before film is where it's at now, currently, again, and 
believe that was probably around 2017. So films started becoming popular again, but it wasn't the hype. I looked up a Jobo and it was probably about $1,500 then. So that was like at the, the low interest of film, $1,500 for the Jobo. And I can just imagine where and what it costs now for people that want to <laughs> develop at home. So, Well, I still, you know, I still have, I had, I had the state of the art four by five enlarger. What was it called? A Saunders. Mm-hmm. Saunders. What is what, uh, what, uh, I think Ansel Adams in the end, that's what it was using. Yeah. And when I was in the Western uh, darkroom, his his um, his grandson Kim runs runs his own studio and his own. He has a, a Jobo processor which uh, he uses from from time to time. He was saying in on in for well, it's all critical, but he said less critical uh, mm-hmm. work. He he, he uses uh, the Jobo processor. Otherwise, he uses. I believe he even uses the dip method, which was a crazy method. He used to put them on basically like uh, like hangers. You know, that you were in the dark mm-hmm. and you were like sloshing around in the dark, you know, turning at 45, 90s. It was, uh, it was a ridiculous method, but, you know, the people who got good at it got, uh, got really good at it. So yeah, it paid off in the end. Yeah. Consistency is the key, pretty much the takeaway of that. And I want to go back to Enzo Adams because obviously he was a pioneer in what he did. Sure. And I bring that up more because of the zone system and how he developed that. But just to have, you know, one day you're developing film. I want to kind of research more into like how he thought of the process of the zone system. Like I'm familiar with kind of like it's still confusing. I, I don't do film like that. So the zone processing is really it's just, you know, it's good to know about, but just, just then, you know, I'm like, oh, all right, let's see. Okay, we are here, and then we can go to this zone, and then we get darker darks and whiter whites and all these other stuffs. So that's pretty interesting how people kind of push the boundaries of development process there. But I, w- I always wondered how Ansel, Ansel Adams would have been as a street photographer, right? Because he made amazing landscapes. Uh, how what would he be like if he was yeah. a, a photojournalist, a street photographer, documentary photographer? I like I like to see that. Yeah, and then if he probably would have came up with his own system for street photography, I'm sure you can still kind yeah. of apply the zone system. But yeah, spot. I'm on. not a technical person, but from what I what I under what I understand is that most photography, like from Eastman Kodak to wherever. It all hinges on eighteen uh, percent gray. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, yes, I got, have meter. you ever used a gray card? Yeah, so, the light meter. Yeah, the light meter, eighteen percent gray. If you point your light meter at something that is eighteen percent gray, that's where your needle is going to get right middle, and you can tell. Mm-hmm. So that is gray. You know, and all of the other uh, shades, you know, are going to like fall into place if you process right, if you expose right, and if you do all of these, all of these things. And, um, you know, he took it to a very uh, high form, you know, a technical form. But to me, basically, I mean, it's like, you know, a picture should have uh, a full rendition of all of the tones, you know, that that make up a a pleasing photograph. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Silver Effects Pro, <clears throat> so it's a it's a plug-in to to Photoshop, you know, I have and there's uh, there's basically 
yeah, there, there, there's a, uh, a way to check your images to see that you have all tones, you know, so and it has, you know, the, the zone, basically 10 zones, mm-hmm. and you just run through it and you, you know, oh, there's my uh, paper white, there's my uh, medium gray, there's, you know, zone 7, 8, 9, 10, and uh, there are ways to kind of like either use your, um, not, I'm not technical either, but your, um, um, you know, the tools, the sliders to kind of bump up, you know, kind of like uh, your shadow detail to kind of yeah. add up and everything. And then even to use the curves, you know, to kind of like bring it all together. But at the same time, you know, people, uh, you know, creative people, you know, don't necessarily want to be held to that either. Mm-hmm. You know, some people like super high contrast images, you know, more power to, I say, more power to them, <laughs> you know. And, you know, some people like, uh, you know, kind of sepia tone looks or a cyanotype uh, look or, you know, whatever. It's, it's all a matter, in my mind anyway, of... Uh, you know, the artist and the artist's decision on what it looks like. In printmaking, I don't think anybody ever told, uh, you know, uh, Michelangelo or any of these artists, you know, I don't really like the way that it looks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, I am the artist. I will make, you know, I will make the art how I, I, I see fit. And if you don't like it, well, you know, move along. Mm-hmm. So I think that that just comes down to discovering what you like as as a creative photographer, an artist in general, like you mentioned high contrast. There are people that like that. And there's some images where I can say, for me, it depends on what the image, the photo that I took, what it looks like. And I'll use myself as the example for this one is when I scan in my black and white film, I use, what is it? Silverfast, I believe the program is. And it gives me a lot of control as how my scanner will record the, the negative and make it a digital file. And I try to keep it balanced. And what I mean by that is when I first started photography and moving into black and white, I, I really like those harsh shadows and like I, I mentioned, the black blacks and the white whites. Like I really like that defined you know, the edge where you can see this was white, this was black, hard contrast. And then the more I kind of started going into more of educational learning from like schools with NYIP workshops, mentorships, I started to kind of like a variety of looks for my images. So I know it's consistency, but there's times where I think some images need that hard contrast where this needs to be 100% black and this one needs to be balanced. So I think it's really more on the experience on how you want to process and output the final image. Yeah, for sure. For sure. You know, it's your vision too. I mean, artists has has a vision. It's it's their, uh, you know, their prerogative sometimes. I, I, that's all I can say, you know, and, uh, you know, people, uh, you know, comment on your images, like the quality of the image, all the quality, you know, if it's like, uh, if you can see it, you know, if you can understand it, I'm, you know, uh, you know, it, it meets all of my own personal, uh, requirements. And, you know, again, too, you know, it's like the old, uh, 
the old thing. If you, you know, you don't like it, move on, you know, find something else that uh, you find interesting or, you know, there are other people who, uh, you know, might find that, that work interesting. So, but for sure, it's, it's, it's all, it's all learning. It's all kind of, uh, adapting and, you know, evolution is, is always part of, uh, every artist's, uh, you know, work that, you know, if it only stayed the same forever, it would be like, well, what is to learn? You know, like, uh, you, you go on and you do things. That's true. And you get, new, and you, and you get new tools too. If you have, you know, like, like I said, the, I, I find silver effects, silver effects pro not not, not, I'm not promoting it or anything, but I find, you know, like working in the darkroom, it, it makes me nostalgic for working in the darkroom because it does many of the things that I, I used to uh, wish I could do in the darkroom. Yeah. You know, really, it, uh, it's, 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 it's a great tool and, you know, it, it just, uh, it just adds, adds to stuff. And that's, that's, uh, that's a good thing. What I haven't, I, I, I've been reading about, um, about Photoshop and, uh, it's, it's, um, denoising, uh, capabilities these days apparently it's using artificial intelligence to you know to get rid of uh you know noise particles and you know making things sharper and, and more defined and so on and again too you know like uh you know any uh, artists in the past including um you know edward weston and, and adams you know they they retouched their negatives they worked their negatives you know some of the prints that they made, I don't know if you're, if you're familiar with the uh, Moonrise at uh, Hernandez, I believe it is. It's one of his famous photographs that he took in uh, in New Mexico, I believe. Um, but I <clears> you know, to see that. some of the earlier prints, some of, to see some of the earlier prints, um, you know, I would say they look almost in, in sacrilegious. They look almost boring. <laughs> you know, it looks like just a ranch and a building and you can see the sun, you know, like, yeah, I drove past when I could see, you know, the sun during the day, you know, between like twilight, you know, between, um, the, the, it was still bright out, but you could see the moon and then over the decades. And I think towards the end of his life, he reinterpreted his negatives and the, the drama that he was able to extract from his negative is extraordinary. You know, and I, I would bet if he had access to, uh, you know, some, some good hard, good software and a good fast computer, you know, you could imagine the kinds of, uh, images. And I'm sure that's sacrilege to anybody who's a, a huge, uh, you know, straight, uh, film photographer, but that's just the way it is sometimes in my mind anyway. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned Silver Effects Pro because I have a computer. And it has Photoshop, and I only use it when I need to. And basically, it's whenever I do paid shoots for families, whatever it may be that I'm hired to do. Because most of my editing, whenever I process my digital images and my film now, because I digitize them, I scan them, and I use Lightroom. And basically, it's enough for what I need. So I don't need the full power of Photoshop, but I have it. So if I need to use it, I do. But I have a computer specifically for Photoshop and Photoshop only, and it has all of that the that whole suite, the Nick Silver Effects, and I haven't used it in so long that I forgot I had them. And you mentioned them, and I remember, oh, see now a lot of those features, I I know what they are now, 
So if I go in there, I can, sure. oh, okay, this is that. But the Silver FX Pro also has filter, what is it? Um, yeah, I guess you can call them filters, where they have presets to make your image look like black and white films. So I do remember a Tri-X, yeah. uh, a Nilford. So I want to go in there and I want to play with some of my images and see if the look is actually what, because I've shot those films now, so I have a little bit more of an experience as opposed to when I got that creative suite. And I was like, well, I don't know what Tri-X looks like. I don't ever want to shoot film, but it's cool to have. Now my images look like Kodak Tri-X. And I actually used it for a project when I was doing my New York Institute of Photography school many, many years ago, the first one. And... That's kind of like a good starting point now is to have a basic understanding of what this means. So I want to go back and I want to try that zone system, see what I can get. Also, you mentioned the AI-based, and that's becoming really big. A lot of people are advertising it with Adobe. And I will say a lot. there was a lot of concern about how people can create images using AI. And I've seen some images, and some of them you can't tell. And I didn't want to use AI-based software for any of my photography because I didn't want to associate it. I didn't want to have my name, you know, tainted, as people might say, with, oh, he uses AI, so is this work really his or is it computer-generated? So none of my work is AI-based, but I, I, I tested it. I wanted to see what it could do. So I just took, like, three random photos I made. One was a cherry blossom. It had a lot of bokeh in the back. Obviously, you got to have, you know, artsy photos. So I took one one like that. And then I took three random street photography images of different kinds, some in focus. I have a particular style that I'm really enjoying, and it's more like motion blur. And I took some of that and... I did the little tool that they have, that AI generative, where it creates a background for you. So I cropped just random, okay. random portions of my image, and I typed in street photography. And it's, I will say, the AI-based tool at this current state is not where they want it to be. So it's very mm, noticeable and apparent that this wasn't part of the image. Now, I will say a high percentage of it was created very well. I, I don't have the photos. I didn't save the output. I wanted to try it, but it was more of just I was curious. So I, I tested it on my own photos. And it's very, very good. It's powerful. And I think, and I know Adobe's going to put a lot of money into this AI stuff. And there's going to be a lot of discussions behind the scenes for many artists and photographers but yeah i i had my fun with it and i'm i'm done the curiosity is no longer there and now i just enjoy making my own artwork yeah exactly i mean i i would say like the um the people who do that kind of like prompts and to generate kind of like interesting images you know i think that is uh you know, again, more power to the people who want to do that. I'm not interested in that. But, you know, the idea of it being able to kind of like a deep noise an image, you know, or 
you know, especially I find if, if you're working in the, um, in the, in the shadows, shadow detail, and you're trying to bring out stuff, you know, there's no, you can only go so far, you know, in Photoshop and even in silver effects pro, if, if the light isn't there, it isn't there. And it, and it looks kind of pixelated. And if it could clean that up, you know, I mean, I'd say there's no harm in that. I mean, people used to use, uh, we used to use spot tone. <laughs> I don't know if you know spot tone, it sounds but it's familiar. like a dye. Yeah. And we used to use our spot tone. And if there was a dust, whatever it is, you know, if there were certain things in the sky, you couldn't, you'd have to like, you'd be using your tongue and like making a little dot, you know, you know, people did. And then before that, they used to scratch the negatives. Mm-hmm. You know, to make a smoother skin and so on, you know. So, you know, I think even uh, um, the uh, W. Eugene Smith, I mean, they found an image that he even superposed uh, a, a face in there, you know. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like the tools you have, I'd say, you know, like anything, you know, if, if the tool is useful, use it. If it's not useful, you know, yeah. scrap it kind of deal you know I, I i shoot raw in jpeg but i mostly use the raw files and then i i use silverfx pro <clears throat> you know I, I usually don't use any of the presets and everything i just kind of like work on the contrast work on the tones work on those those types of things that kind of like speak to me so um you know, I don't know if, uh, I'm sure, you know, the people who use it to an extreme, you know, probably, you know, say, oh, you could get much more out of your negative. But for me, you know, I, I kind of, you know, it, it went from uh, a very, uh, a very, very old Photoshop uh, program I used years ago and to, to my Photoshop was easily 10 years old. Uh, anyway, so, so outdated and so on. And then I went to Snapseed. Yes. I used to edit all my pictures when I first started doing uh, returning to street photography and a small hellhole and held uh, Fuji Fuji camera, um, an X series X one hundred T. I used Snapseed for the first maybe six months, you know, and I was like, I was happy with that, you know. Mm-hmm. And when I got the new tools, that it kind of uh, I I think it kind of like helped uh, with my vision and then consistency over. Uh, you know, over, over images, you know, so my, uh, my Instagram feed didn't look like, you know, up and down, you know, <laughs> and so that's, uh, that's it. That's, that's, that's the challenge. <clears throat> but, you know, I try things on Instagram and they're pretty much like the experiments, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the images that, uh, that I find interesting and, and, and what I, I get out of them. I shoot mostly in Montreal, you know, so there are, I would say there's a community of, maybe 15, 20 that I know of who are out there actively hosting and, and, uh, exhibiting and so on. And, um, Fred Ranger is, uh, not in my neighborhood, but I mean, I, I've known some of his, his images that he shot in the same places that I, I have, you know, so you know, there's about, uh, 10 kind of like mini cities, boroughs besides the main Montreal center core of the city. And all of them have, you know, interesting character and interesting things that, that happen in them. And, and those are my uh, my stomping grounds. The main one is uh, St. Catherine Street. So St. Catherine Street, I guess, would be like, say, Broadway in New York mm-hmm. or Fifth Avenue. You know, it's the main commercial street of all the people going to work, doing their bit, going to school, what have you. And then the off off streets, the side, side streets, 
and then you know the Chinatowns and Little Italy's, you know, kind of like where uh, the Little India and um, you know areas where um, you know other other communities live and so on. Mm-hmm. But of course, there are big events, you know, like the Jazz Festival, like Just for Laughs Festival, all of these things that bring like millions of of people from outside of the city plus the city, you know, and then you're just there doing your thing. And, um, those, those things happen, but by and large, most days I'm out, uh, when I do go out during, during the day, uh, photographing, uh, it's just like regular everyday stuff that uh, I happen to see. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like, um, I guess like everybody else, things that interest them, you know? So, so what interests you the most? And I, what kind of things are you looking for? That's a good question. Really, nothing in particular, but when I see it, I know it, you know, you know kind of deal, you know. Yeah. Um, what I, I, uh, I, yeah, I don't know if you, if you know, there's, um, there's a, a fellow called uh, Dotan Sege. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen any of his YouTube. I know. Excellent. Dotan. The work that he does, the work that he does in, in, um, in, um, in Venice Beach, you know, really inspirational. And I, I really, I enjoyed his B&H program. During the pandemic, I had the chance to, to, to watch a few of them, and I liked his um, I liked his uh, his method. He calls it I think he's he's called he calls him the dim method, but I added one. I added an e. So I, I say it's the dime method. You heard of the dime method? I have not. So, so he talks a bit. Of, so <clears throat> he says that when you go out and photograph, and even when you're editing too, you know. So we should all have our tools with us, you know, like a workman, like someone going out, a journalist has his pad and pencil, and, you know, a carpenter has all his uh, saws and hammers. So you have your tools all, all with you and you should be out. Um, the dime method. So design, mm-hmm. you should always be thinking about design. So basically composition, you know, the so-called rule of thirds, the spiral, you know, leading lines, um, kind of balance, chaos, you know, all the things that, uh, you know, European paintings have kind of passed down to us that we watch uh, television or we watch, read magazines or look at art and it's all built in there, right? So people have been, you know, from the earliest times thinking about design or composition. Information that we have to kind of like show something that people understand that we give them enough so that they're not confused. This is, you know, this is a horse and it's not a donkey. It's, <laughs> you know, it's a flower. It's not a whatever. It's a human being. It's not, you know, whatever. You don't want to confuse people too much if you don't have to. Moment, mm. you know, so capturing peak moments. You should be looking for peak moments and emotion, you know. So you're looking for, you know, people smiling, people laughing, people, you know, emotional uh, or, you know, all of those things could add up from everything that you've, uh, you've done and consider lighting as well. You know, lighting has to be part of it. And I like, um, there's a, a French philosopher called uh, Roland Barthes. He talks about um, a punctum. So something in the image, you know, either, you know, say a man smoking a cigar or a woman carrying, you know, an oversized bag, you know, kind of thing, or someone carrying a, a puppy, you know, in a purse kind of deal. You know, these are the things that are going to attract the eye 
and then if someone was to see the photograph, they would have a, a reaction to it as well, you know. So hopefully, you know, some of these things kind of ring a bell with people and, you know, in the process of taking the photograph and then in the process of editing your photographs, you know, the pictures that you find um, interesting, yeah. you know. So, <clears throat> you know, I, I try to look for interesting people. I try to interesting situations and, um, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, it's like, uh, it's like the, uh, what is the thing? If, if I can't describe it, but if you show it to me, I know it, you know, kind of deal. Just the, you see it, you want it, you capture it. Yeah, you see, exactly. You see it, you know, what speaks to you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I try to, uh, I try to do those things that are of interest to me and hopefully, you know, of interest to, to others. And, uh, you know, so. Okay. Yeah. A lot of information there. But let's go ahead and get your social media account so people know how to see your work and view it since we mentioned social media recently and we can kind of segue into that. You know, so, I, sh- I, should, uh, I should have that. But it is Martin A. Martin dot A dot loft, L-O-F-T underscore photography. And uh, I have, um, well, when you open it up, oh, I'm, I'm also, I don't know if you've heard of the uh, the 24-hour project at all. I have not. So there's a, a project. Basically, there are documentary photographers and street photographers who photograph, photograph for 24 hours in whatever city they're at. And they try to post a photo every hour for 24 hours. Yes. So not everyone does the 24 hours, but there are enough people who do and uh, so anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be doing that this year. Oh, um, so luck. on my, my site, I've got some of my portraits, some of the work I've done, I know, 24 <laughs> hours. Uh, some of the work I've done, some of the portraits, some of the kind of like the articles I've, I've been in, and then it goes right into my, my, um, my regular page of all my, you know, photographing in the streets, photographing in the metros, mm-hmm. uh, interesting people and uh, things I've seen along the way. And, um, I would say that, uh, for every 200 pictures, you there, my battery is getting low. Oh, no worries. For every 200 pictures, I, I choose one, you know, kind of deal. You know, sometimes I can, I can go for two, but, um, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing that, uh, that kind of happens around what I do. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm besides, besides a street photographer, I also do documentary. I've done a little bit of photojournalism. I won a Quebec Community Newspaper Award for a piece I did on um, the Truth and Reconciliation March in, in Montreal. It was uh, an important march to commemorate um, the Canadian apology to Indigenous people for uh, the residential school, the Indian boarding school issue. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, <laughs> but in Canada and the U.S. too. For over a hundred years, um, the vast majority of Indian children were removed from their homes and sent to boarding schools where they were, in some cases, forced to uh, learn English and to drop all of their indigenous uh, culture and so on. So I won an award for that. And then on to uh, you know some of the articles I've written and been featured in. And this year, I'm part of the, uh, the International Montreal International First Peoples Festival, um, which takes place right in downtown Montreal next to 
Last Days Are, which is a, a concert hall and a festival grounds. And I've got a, an exhibition that will be on display in, in two weeks, in, in, in 10 days, actually. Oh, nice. um, so portraits that I've taken, they're, they're enlarging them to three feet by six feet right down the uh, festival grounds. And in the evening, they're doing a projection on a big a light-colored building at the back of the festival. So in the evening, there's going to be concerts and you know, people on picnic, on, um, you know, having picnics and whatnot. And then my images are going to be projected on a 20-story building right behind the, uh, behind the place. So that is, uh, that is going on uh, shortly. So I'm busy. And uh, I've got uh, other projects coming up, and you know, and what's interesting about social media and even doing podcasts and going on the radio and so on is that um, you know our profiles have an opportunity, you know, to kind of like be be could raise our profiles, you know. So uh, I've had a few offers uh, from legitimate uh, curators in the last while to uh, participate in work that they're doing, you know. So I'm, it's it's very gratifying. And, um, you know, I'm very pleased about that. I did 30 years in a, a cultural museum, you know, so I, I organized exhibitions and symposiums and, and whatnot and art exhibitions. And I, I, I pushed and I was an advocate for many artists over these years. And I always kind of like put my own stuff on the side, you know, I never, because yeah. it's, it's kind of, you're in a conflict if you're in a museum and you're bringing in artists and like, if you say, well, well, my, my, my work deserves, you know, that sort of uh, recognition. All so of I, I'm, I'm basically retired now. And, uh, yeah, we, uh, but at the same time, you know, when you're, when you're a, um, like I'm a, I'm a lone wolf now in a sense, you know, I'm on my own. Uh, I can push my own work, you know. Yes. And, you know, hopefully people won't be a fit. You know, I'll push my own stuff. And in that, in that uh, regards, you know, I think it's with social media, with um you know, a little bit of publicity and so on. I'm on, uh, I think all we can hope for is to be on the radar of people who make decisions, you know, in this regard. And uh, luckily, like I said, I'm, I'm kind of on the radar, on their radar. So they're calling me, you know, I'm not necessarily calling them. So when you start out as a young artist, you know, you have to shamelessly carry your portfolio, used to anyway, your portfolio from museum to museum, to gallery, and pray that someone is going to give you, you know, five minutes. But as you get older, you know, and you get a little more, uh, you know, um, traction, let's say, um, you know, sometimes people want to work with you because they've, they've seen your work and they've, you know, they've heard, they've heard things. And, um, you know, good. I got a newspaper that called me and asked me if they could commission me to do 25 portraits nice. of people that they've interviewed over the last year, you know, and I said, hey, you know, send me the details. How much you want to pay me? Uh, <laughs> we can That's talk. The most important part. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, you got to. I mean, if you're going to commission me to do it, yeah. you know. But then the added pressure is now. I used to always work for myself, and I'm used to that. So I make the decisions. I decide yeah. what is an interesting portrait. When you're working for someone, they decide. Yes. So that you know, I'm just thinking like, if I have to do 25 of them, am I going to have to do reshoots on half of them? You know, because Whatever I saw. If the meter is running, maybe, you know, I'll go back. No problem. Yeah. Anyway. Send. These are your portraits. No, we don't want these. All right. Give you some more. It, it is always a little. Oh, well, yeah. That's. I always have the, the same feeling. Exactly. 
when I do paid shoots is like I'm confident in my ability to make photos that I like very, you know, like this is a great image for me. Like this is this. And I have all the confidence in the world for my own abilities. But there's always those people like no matter how good you shoot it, you just can't please them. And that nervousness is always, you know, the beginning of the shoot. Excuse me, is always like, man, are they gonna like these images? I, you know, like I'm charging these people all of this money, and like, are they gonna like them? Are they gonna hate them? So, for me, it's just I have the con. Like I said, yeah, I have the confidence in your ability. Is whenever I start getting that little that nervous feeling in in, in your stomach, like, man, are these people gonna like my images? Like, have to remind yourself. Like yeah, I'm I'm good enough. They hired me for a reason. They're gonna like my product, and they they do genuinely. I don't. I mean, at least that's what they say. Maybe they hate the photos. I don't know because they'll never tell you, or maybe they will. But as long as you have the confidence in your own ability and you know you're shooting the best you can, with you know, because there are certain situations you can't control, like weather. If you shoot outside, you can't do that. You can't control the the clouds, but if you do everything properly the way you're supposed to do it, then don't worry about it. I guess that's what I'm trying. Long story short. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But uh we will start wrapping up now. I got some some last minute things I gotta do before I start getting ready for my other job. But I'd like to get your recommendations, highlights for people you feel do not get the recognition they deserve. So photographers, radio broadcasters, whoever it may be that you feel does not get the recognition. And if they have social media, how people can find them and view their work. Sure, sure. <clears throat> well, there are people that I, I started out with many, many years ago. Who, who did great work and they still continue to do interesting work. <clears throat> Greg Stocks is a, an excellent photographer. He won, uh, I think it was the, um, oh Jesus, the Royal something or other photography prize back in the 90s and, and so on. He's, his work is really good. Greg Stocks, I don't have his website. Mm-hmm. Jeff Thomas, excellent uh, documentary photographer and fine art photographer. Rick Hill, who is uh, also a very fine artist and, and, and photographer, and David Neal, who's a friend of mine who just published um, a book of his, uh, his photographs and, and stories with elders on the West Coast. So those are some of the people that uh, I, I respect. And, you know, I mean, I think that they, um, and they're well known in, in small pockets here in Canada in the arts field, mm-hmm. but I mean, on a wider, as a wider international audience, you know, I think that uh, they deserve uh, recognition. Yeah. So I was going to ask if these people have Instagram by any chance. If so, I can get their their handles. You can send they, them to me after. I what I could do is I'll I'll, I'll send you them. Yeah, I'll send them to you, and and we can see. I know some of them have. Well, David Neal is also a jeweler, so he makes beautiful jewelry. <laughs> but he also started out as as a photographer. Uh, oh, and Shelly Nero as well, who's uh, a painter and a printmaker and an, a wonderful photographer. Uh, she does great work and she has uh, a, a very, you know, international profile, like in the arts, the arts field. Okay. Perfect. 
And so it's been it's been fantastic, Ricky. I really uh, enjoyed talking with you. Okay. And I uh, hope about your to die. <laughs> listeners have uh, learned a little bit. And <laughs> yeah, my phone is really right. literally going to die here. So we'll have to skip the last few questions. That's fine. But it, it was a great talk. Thank you for being a part of the podcast. And like I said, giving a listener something to listen to. I do want to say to all of the listeners and who have been trying to tag me in their, so not me personally, but my LSPC Instagram page, I do highly recommend using the hashtags because I get so many requests with like direct messages to feature their images. And while I do want to feature them, I just get so much, it's overwhelming. It's easier for me to just search through the hashtags. So if you want the feature, I, I look through it regularly. The hashtags are the easiest way for me to find your work and feature you on the LSPC Instagram page. So that's all I got for there. Thank you once again for taking the time out and recording with me. I do appreciate it. Martin Loft, any last words before we head out? Well, once again, just uh, thank you for inviting me. Uh, I'm really, really happy to be here. And uh, I actually was a Leica shooter for a while and an M3 uh, <laughs> back in the day, and I traded it for uh, for large format cameras. But, nice. you know, one day when I hit the lottery, uh, I might just go out and buy that uh, that uh, Q3 and uh, <laughs> shoot with uh, that local machine, you know. so Low stock worldwide. But I hope you get it, and good luck with that once again. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Appreciate it. Great conversation. Martin Loff, Leica Street Photography Collective.